All right, welcome to episode one of the Purple and Bold podcast, our new podcast here at the Daily News Tracker dedicated to discussing uh, James Madison athletics. Joining me today are Shane Metlin, our JMU men's and women's basketball beat writer, along with Noah Fleischman, who is just weeks into his new gig as the JMU football beat writer. Uh, so just to start, Noah, how is the transition going thus far? Oh, it's going great. Very busy time, though, but it's going, it's going really well for the first month, so let's keep it going. Uh, gentlemen, let's jump right into it. Um, as you said, it's been a busy time. Uh, let's start with the football team who um, has been busy themselves over the last couple of weeks in the transfer portal. Um, they've had some additions. They've had some subtractions. Um, they had a lot going on. Um, let's start with uh, one of the subtractions. Um, and Antoine Wells Jr. Uh, entered the transfer portal after a record-breaking season this past year. Um, you know, set three programs, single-season records, uh, 83 receptions. Um, 1,250 yards, 15 touchdowns this past fall, uh, ranks third all-time in career receiving touchdowns, ninth all-time in career receiving yards, and ninth all-time in career receptions. Um, that all comes in just two seasons. So, um, you know, it's, it's been an interesting time. Um, South Carolina uh, is where he ends up, um, but he had a lot of offers. I mean, within a couple hours, uh, we saw Mississippi State, Virginia Tech, several other teams roll in. So um, thoughts on that decision by wells and um you know his landing spot and how he'll fare there i guess you could probably call it like a little bit of emotional roller coaster for jmu fans (laughs) because i think you know they probably they probably expected didn't they probably had hope anyway i would say that they weren't going to lose some of their key players um but then obviously at the same time you have to realize when you got talent like that there's going to be people you know interested in getting somebody that that capable who also has several years left to play. So, you know, a little bit of an up and down thing, you know, thinking, okay, we got a really good team coming back, got a lot of talent, you know, at our skill positions. But then you lose Antoine Wells, and then really within hours, you're finding, you know, I don't know if you replace a guy that good necessarily, but you're finding two guys who can really contribute at that position, you know, within a day. It's, you know, kind of a crazy up and down for them at that at that point. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that he almost made himself a record holder at JMU in two seasons, really the first season. His freshman year was kind of the spring season, so not even a full a full slate of games. But really, yeah, he's going to the SEC, but he had offers within probably an hour of announcing his, his decision to leave and then a couple of days later made his choice. But, I mean, JMU picked up two receivers to replace him with Terrence Green from Monmouth and Kobe White from Boston College, so... They lost one to the portal, but they picked up two really quick. I would say you guys have seen Wells play and um, are, are familiar with just how good he's been. I mean, obviously the numbers speak for themselves. Um, like I mentioned, his career, I mean, 21 touchdowns, um, over 1,800 yards, and, and 116 receptions. I mean, he's just put up huge numbers. Um, even at, at, in the current room before they had the transfers, they had a, a good room. But um, in, in terms of Wells, I mean, is he a guy that you guys think has that ability to be successful even at the SEC level? Obviously, that's the highest in the, in the sport right now. But, um, I mean, it, it, does his game translate to that high of a level? I would think so. I mean, it was kind of remarkable all season watching him play that, you know, this guy was an FCS recruit to begin with. You know, he, <laughs> and, you know, he came in right away and was producing like that against good teams and you know you look at the Sagarin ratings which you know maybe aren't a gospel that a lot of JMU fans kind of want to point to because JMU tends to look pretty good <laughs> those compared to a lot of group of five teams and stuff but um, you, you look at those and you know a JMU a Villanova 
and the CAA, teams like North Dakota State, they're on par with those group of five teams, and he's putting up these kinds of numbers. You would have to think he's you know an FBS caliber guy, maybe not a superstar in the SEC. That, that time will tell that, but you know, he, I guess he was probably under recruited in high school to end up at Jamie in the first place. I mean, to say he was under recruited in high school is kind of, kind of like you know, it's pretty much the truth because he ended up going to doing a prep year at Fork Union, and then Jamie was still the biggest offer he got out of there, so he ended up taking it. But before at a high school, he only had offers from like Campbell and a few other small FCS schools, so. It's kind of amazing to see how, how under the radar he flew out of high school, coming out of a big-time school in Richmond and Highland Springs. He won two state championships there. And so then to kind of make his make himself known at JMU, and then I think that kind of gave him the springboard to, to get to the place where he wanted to be, which is in the SEC. And it looks like he'll he'll do quite well there with Spencer Rattler uh, throwing the ball to him at South Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you got to think Shane Beamer probably pulled some of his old connections uh, with Highland Springs, uh, you know, a couple of Virginia Tech connections there. Obviously, I know the Hokies uh, were – the fan fan base there was very eager and very optimistic that they could pull Wells down there, but um, he's headed to the Gamecocks, so uh, that'll be an interesting fit. And um, obviously, I'm sure a lot of Dukes fans will be cheering for him um, down there. But uh, as you guys mentioned, um, they, they did find a quick replacement for him and actually found two um, – pretty quickly and Terrence Green Jr. Uh, from from Monmouth and then Kobe White from uh, Boston College. Um, Green was a two-time All-Big South selection, uh, had a four-year career there um, with just over 2,000 career receiving yards, um, actually scored a touchdown against the Dukes in 2019 in the second round of the SCS playoffs. Um, Noah wrote about that last week and his familiarity with the program there. Um, you know, just starting with Green, uh, you know, what have you seen seen from him? What do you expect from him? Um, you know, how much of a fit is he for, for JMU in the future? Yeah, he's probably not going to be a guy like Antoine Wells to come in and kind of take over, but he's going to be a guy they can use and contribute. And that's kind of the role he talked about when, when I talked to him on the phone last week is um, Coach Signetti and the coaching staff have really told him that he can come in right away and contribute. So he's not going to be like the guy, the receiver. I really think you're going to look at Chris Thornton there. But he's a guy that can come in and, and play in a slot or find his way downfield. And he really he can score touchdowns, but I don't think that'll be his, his number one goal. His number one goal is kind of just to to do his job and, and contribute to the offense, but he doesn't have to be the, the number one receiver to make that work. Yeah, I think you know what you're going to see with JMU this year maybe won't be having a Wells who's you know your star receiver, even though Hayden Thornton put up you know pretty pretty similar numbers mm-hmm. this year. Um, instead of seeing you know one guy maybe being the main target, they're going to have a really deep core of wide receivers which I think has got to be pretty nice for a new quarterback coming in to uh, ha- have a variety of options, being able to kind of you know, spread it around, and you add in you know, Centeno's legs to the mix. Mm-hmm. It's going to keep defenses off balance, I would tend to think, where you're not focusing so much on one guy as you might be if, uh, if, if things had stayed the same. Yeah, Kobe White uh, from Boston College, obviously, um, you know, an ACC product there, um, has dealt with some injuries in recent seasons, uh, but his first three years, he had over 1,400 receiving yards, 10 touchdowns, um, actually led the Eagles in 2018 with 33 receptions. Uh, I know injury concerns were, were some things that were brought up by fa- fans and, and around the Jamie fan base, but uh, no, you said you've, you've been told that he is healthy and good to go. Um, you know, what can you tell us about Kobe White? Yeah, no, he's a guy that had really was really a big contributor for Boston College in his first three years before he had knee injury, which kind of limited in the last two, and he only played in four games. But I've been told he's fine and he'll be ready to play for the season, and and I think during the spring as well, he's a mid-year, one of the mid-year transfers that they're one of twelve that they're expecting um, between 
um, collegiate transfers and high school guys coming in early. But I definitely think he's another guy that can play a similar role of, of green and kind of just help bring more depth to that receiver room. But he's also got a proven guy that can play at that Power 5 level, which will help kind of in that transition to the FBS. Yeah, I wanted to touch on uh, Chris Thornton, too. I mean, you, you just mentioned him. I mean, obviously, he kind of goes um, – you know, overlooked a bit, I guess, sometimes because of the numbers that Wells put up. And, and but you know, like Shane said, I mean, he was he was almost equally as impressive this past year. Uh, you know, does does his presence in that room as a returner kind of make, I guess, the pain of losing Wells probably a little easier for JMU fans? I would think so. You know, we talk about Antoine Wells being a record-breaking guy. Chris Thornton would have some of those single-season records <laughs> if, if Antoine knows. hadn't just edged him out for some of them this year. You know, even even in the last game. You know, uh, it came down to the two of them who was going to have the most yards, the most touchdowns, and everything. So, you know, they're not losing Antoine Wells. Is, it hurts, and you know, you you were looking forward to seeing him play here for four or five years if you're a JMU fan, but you're not really hurting overall in the uh, wide receiver room. You know, with bringing in some more depth and everything, it, it, it's not it's not a uh, all of a sudden, a area of concern necessarily, even if you're losing a player that good. Yeah, and that wide receiver room is going to make things easier for whoever the quarterback is. I'm sure it's made things um, quite nice for Cole Johnson over the past couple of years. Um, you know, Noah also touched on the quarterback room and how it's been, um, you know, highly decorated over the past few seasons. Uh, we all, all know, obviously, next year it's going to be a big competition going into the year with. with uh, it looks like three quarterbacks right now. Obviously, uh, the, the transfer in Todd Santeo, um, and, the, and then obviously registered freshman Billy Atkins, and uh, the true freshman coming in as well. So, uh, just touch on that and kind of what you're, you're expecting going into the spring season, and then you know how you how you kind of see that thing shaping up. Yeah, Signetti talked about how they're going to really compete in the spring for that for that role between the three of the the top three quarterbacks on the chart, but. Tots and Tail probably come in as the favorite, just being a guy who's played at the FBS level and started games at Colorado State and at Temple before that. So I, I'd imagine that he's going to have the biggest, I guess, leg up on the other two. But Billy Atkins, he played a couple games, or four games last year, and he had some bright spots. And then Alonzo Barnett is a guy that's a true freshman from North Carolina who kind of lit up the stat sheet this past year in his senior year with 3,000 passing yards, I think over 35 touchdowns, and he didn't have that many interceptions. So it's going to be a cool competition to watch, but I definitely think that Todson Teo probably comes in with a leg up as kind of like the the preseason favorite to get the job, but Signetti really didn't promise anyone the job, and so it's going to be everyone's to kind of, you know, fight for. Yeah, Signetti, you know, he... He specifically kind of wanted to point out, I think, when we talked to him the other day, that he did not make any promises to anyone about any starting jobs. But Centeo is going to go in as the clear favorite to win the starting job, you know, especially him getting here in the spring and having as much experience as he has. I think you know, it would be a shock if he doesn't end up the day one starter next August. But you know, it will definitely be interesting kind of to see the competition in the spring between Atkins and Barnett. You know, they're going to be kind of going for that primary backup role, which Atkins had this year. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Atkins. You know, what, what's the feeling around him, around what you've, you know, heard from the coaching staff, um, players? I mean, what, you know, he's been a guy that the backup quarterback is always, you know, one of the most popular players just because he's a guy that, that folks always want to see. And, and like you said, he was, he's been sitting there kind of waiting. And then all of a sudden, you know, this all season, you know, the move to the Sun Belt kind of, you know, pushed things. But with, with Cole Johnson leaving, um, you know, they jump into the transfer portal. But, you know, what's the feeling around Atkins? I know there's, at times, you know, there's been a lot of promise around him. Yeah, I think they were pretty pleased with what he did in the backup role this year, and maybe he didn't get as many snaps as he might have 
because they preserved his red shirt, only playing him in four games. And the one game he played in, he only played one snap because they weren't sure if Cole Johnson had a concussion. <laughs> so they basically was, you know, and ended up uh, clearing that up pretty fast. But um, he, he's a talent. He's just a young guy. He doesn't have the experience. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how young quarterbacks handle the transfer portal as much as anybody else. Um, because do you stick around and be the next Cole Johnson, even if it takes you four years to see the field? <laughs> or, you know, w- what happens if they go for another grad transfer after Santeo's gone? You know, there's going to be interesting things to look for there. But everyone's high on Atkins. Everyone's high on Barnett. I would think both of those guys have a future at JMU. If, but uh, these days, you never know how long anybody's going to stay in a program if they're not on the field right away. Yeah, the transfer portal, you know, Noah and I talked about this today, it's, ter- it's essentially turned into college free agency in, in some ways, um, and uh, every team has to use it now. It's changed, obviously, the college landscape completely, but especially for JMU in this transition, um, do you think that's kind of maybe even maybe put more emphasis on the transfer portal in terms of, you know, them needing to add, you know, FBS quality players to their roster is that something that you expect to you know we've seen it already be it's, they've been very active this year but do you expect that to maybe be a trend over the next couple of seasons as they try to make this transition I see them using it this year really to build that that roster up to the number they need to get up to I think 85 or 83 but I think over the next few years we may see them if they you could go the route of just making your high school classes bigger and finding more quality players there but you could also use the portal just depending on if they're going to end up changing the rules on the portal again whether you have to sit again after you transfer in because I think that's really one what's unlocked I guess the portal to make it what it is where you can have the one-time transfer of not having to sit so if that rule were to change again I definitely think that they would really stay away from it as much as they've been going into it this year but overall if they want to start building that culture of, of winning and kind of bringing guys in and developing them then you might see them kind of draw back a little bit from the portal and use their high school recruits and kind of just try to build that way. Another touch on this the other day, too. It's, you know, if you lose a starter in the transfer portal, you want to gain a starter in the mm-hmm. transfer portal. You're not going to make up a lot of ground if you're replacing that an Antoine Wells with a high school wide receiver. And <laughs> you saw JMU come out and do it. They went and got two guys who are starting caliber experienced receivers. Um so I think that's probably where you're going to see them focus on the portal. You, you might not know like what they're looking for a year ahead of time the way you do with wait in the past. You know you could say okay for the 23 class of high school kids they're going to need five offensive linemen or whatever because these are the guys that are graduating. And I think it's just a different world because you don't know what you're going to need in the spring. I mean they don't know what they're going to need after spring ball this year. They might have more guys leave. There might be more guys in the portal available after they go through their spring ball. So. It's a really different situation these days based on, you know, okay, we're going to have 25 high school kids and two of them are going to be running backs and, you know, blah, 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 down the line. You don't know what you're going to need. Yeah, and that leads right into, you know, my next question, which is, you know, Signetti has put a big emphasis this week on, you know, how – the move to the Sun Belt has changed kind of the types of recruits they can get, the caliber of recruits they can get. Um, you know, he, he mentioned to, to you guys the other day in, in, your, in your interview um, that, that the backyard here uh, was a priority in terms of, you know, recruiting in the state of Virginia. Um, he mentioned Maryland, West Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina. Um, but, but specifically here in the state of Virginia, he wants to, uh, to really focus on that and get some of these high caliber recruits now that they're up at the FBS level. Um, you know, what else did Signetti, you know, say about that, and and how much of a priority is that going to be for him um, moving forward? 
Yeah, he talked about how he went back to his days at Pitt, and there was a time where they were going down to Texas and Louisiana and recruiting there, and then they realized that there's all this talent in western Pennsylvania that they kind of were leaving on the table and they were going elsewhere. So he really thinks that using Virginia as the starting ground, as the starting point, is probably the number one priority, not only in the high school recruiting, but we're also starting to see it in the transfer portal. I mean, they got an uh, offensive lineman from Coastal Carolina who's from Manassas. They've, they've offered some guys that are from the 757 area. So, I mean, they're definitely looking at that as the high school level, but they're also looking just from, from at guys that are from Virginia to begin with that may have left the state to go elsewhere at college, but now they're trying to get them to come back and, and kind of really build that here so you can start to get the higher-level recruits that come out of Virginia because Virginia tends to produce a lot of really top talent, but they end up going to bigger FBS schools that may be outside the state. You see that with UVA and Virginia Tech really losing a lot of recruits that way too. Yeah, it's interesting the transfer portal across multiple sports. How often you're seeing guys or, or girls, you know, across multiple sports who who left the state to go play, and now they're grad transfers or they're transferring after a few years, and they want to come home. Basically, uh, you're seeing in the men's basketball team at JMU. You know, Charles Baldwin's a good example of that. Uh, you know, went to play four years at Winthrop, and then mm-hmm. the opportunity to play back in Virginia as a Richmond native was pretty enticing to him. Play one year close to family and everything. And they're getting a little bit of that on the football side now, too. You're seeing guys who are from in-state who went out of state saying, okay, it might be nice to be back in Virginia for a year or two. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like right now would be just almost perfect timing for for this move to be happening for JMU. Um, You know, Virginia Tech and Virginia have both been down in recent seasons. Obviously, there's still Power 5 programs in in the ACC, but... Uh, with the move to the FBS, and I feel like the down years combined with Virginia Tech and Virginia, it seems like you know a prime recruiting opportunity here for JMU to get some of these, maybe sneak in and grab some of these players um, that just simply want to play at the FBS level. I mean, it seems like you know the stars are kind of aligning there for for JMU. Yeah, for sure. Then you also have the fact that both of those schools now have new coaching staffs, and JMU with Signetti has been here for a few years now, so he may have already have a leg up on them, even though they have the brand recognition of being Virginia Tech and UVA. But he may have that leg up of already having connections in the state and kind of trying to leverage those a little more now with JMU moving to the Sun Belt. Now you can't really point to JMU and say, hey, they're an FCS school. Now you can look at them and say, like, there's really not much separating them other than the fact of what conference they play in now. They're both going to be bowl eligible in a few years. And then after that, you could see a team like Cincinnati make a run to the college football playoff. And that really doesn't leave JMU out of the question of getting that far if they can kind of build a program and get it in a winning culture like that. And, and moving on, you know, I know one of the biggest topics of discussion, uh, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, th- throughout the discussion boards has been the, the schedule for next year. Obviously, a lot of Jamie fans excited about the move to the Sun Belt. Um, you know, it's, it's expected that they're going to uh, play an FBS schedule next year uh, with, with eight Sun Belt games um, and, and then four um, other games, obviously, as well. We know uh, Weaver State, Norfolk State, Louisville are on the schedule right now. Um, obviously, that's three opponents. With when you add in the eight Sun Belt opponents, that puts the, the Dukes at eleven right now. Um, you know, a lot of folks are expecting there to be a twelfth game added, and, and a lot of folks are expecting that to be a home game against an FBS opponent. Um, that opponent has not been announced. Uh, you know, if you guys knew this answer, I know you guys would have, have already done the story on it, but um, just based off pure speculation, maybe some things you've heard or, 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 or whatever, um, you know, what are kind of your expectations there? What do you kind of, how do you see the schedule shaping up for next fall? I think they're going to play like eight Sun Belt games, like, like you mentioned, um, and they'll find a fifth 
home game for an FBS opponent. There's just a lot of moving parts. Um, first off, the Sun Belt can't really finalize their schedule until they find out for sure if Southern Miss, Marshall, and ODU are going to get out of Conference USA a year ahead of time, which I think within the next few weeks we should have a pretty solid answer on that. Uh, but, you know, nothing really gets finalized or announced until then. When you look at scheduling that fifth FBS team, it's probably going to be somebody who's looking for a game. And you look at, you know, independent teams, you got Army, you got UMass, uh, UConn, even New Mexico State, if they might be, you know, willing and desperate enough to travel across the country for a road <laughs> game. Uh, there's Liberty that's still in, a, you know, a weird kind of situation where they're moving to Conference USA. They're always, like, buying in and out of games. So there's there's definitely some possibilities. But then, you know, Kurt Signetti mentioned something the other day about, you know, we have to play 11 games at least. Um, you know, you can play 12 at the FBS level. I think 11 might be the minimum. I'm not 100% sure on that. So to have some more flexibility on dates to buy somebody to bring somebody in, do you buy out of, your way out of a uh, Norfolk State game or a Weber State, you know, FCS game? So there's just a lot of moving parts before they can really finalize that. But I've never gotten a sense in the past several weeks that anybody is not confident that they will play an FBS schedule and get it done and, you know, kind of basically eliminate that transition period everybody else has gone through other than the fact that they won't be bowl eligible next year. And, you know, not that I've ever heard anything about it, but at this point, like, it seems like everything's thrown out the window. Maybe they'll just, like, <laughs> eliminate, uh, eliminate transitions altogether. Who knows? Yeah, no. Have you? Do you have any speculation on terms of teams that you might and might expect? I know um, at this point, like I said, it's it's purely speculation. Um, and as Shane said, there's a lot of moving parts, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things that need to happen first. But um, you know, are there any teams out there that you think that you could see um, kind of fitting as that that fifth game there? Yeah, the ones you really look at are like UMass and UConn. Those are kind of schools that their football teams aren't great, and I think they would definitely want to want to make a trip down. To Harrisonburg and probably try to schedule a game there. I mean, it's an away game you kind of don't want to play, but at the same time, if if JMU is putting up some money to, to get them to come down, they might be able to do it. That's probably what's going to result in JMU is going to probably have to to kind of put some money up like they would for an FCS game with Norfolk State and and Weber State. But you know, I think that at the end of the day, they're probably going to play eleven or twelve games. It depends on if they want to play that second FCS game. I mean, Signetti kind of talked about only playing one FCS game, but. The, the, I mean, they've got two on the schedule right now. So either they get out of one or they just suck it up and play both of them. Yeah, Signetti has been, um, you know, very enthusiastic over the past few weeks uh, since the end of the season. Um, you know, a little bit more active on Twitter than, than we were used to seeing. Uh, what, what do you guys think has brought on this sudden, um, you know, energetic approach from uh, from the Jamie football coach? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of a recruiting tool. And, I mean, he talked about the way that they operate in the chance a lot of it's on Twitter, and you got to follow a recruit and hope he follows you back and just go from there. And So I think he's trying to use it as a, as a recruiting tool. It also kind of gets the JMU fan base kind of fired up for this move to the FBS, having your head coach on Twitter kind of putting information out there in different ways and then also kind of just, you know, straight up saying that they're ready to play an FBS schedule and be the first team to play a full FBS schedule in their first year of transition and kind of cut it down to one year and get eligible for the 2023 season. 
Yeah, there was a time back during bowl season where he kind of flirted with the idea of them replacing an opponent in a bowl game, and um, you know, it got Jamie fans excited. It was just a couple days, I believe, after the loss to North Dakota State, and Shane kind of touched on it in a tweet where um, you know it, it kind of just put put Jamie's name out there and, and and got people talking for a little bit. I mean, how much of it is maybe just kind of a marketing tool almost? I think so, yeah, and I think I could probably admit at this point that you know I. When he tweeted that out, I, I asked him right away. I was like, is this realistic at all? And he was like, no, but let him have some fun. <laughs> was what, what fun for me. So I kind of tried to, you know, make it clear that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know, he was really kind of taking advantage of that opportunity to have people talking about JMU. And, you know, as much as we've been talking about JMU to the FBS for a couple years here in Harrisonburg and across Virginia now, you know, you got to remember he needs the nation to – remember that JMU is joining the Sun Belt and they're moving to FBS and you know even people have heard about it it's not necessarily at the front of their mind if they're not here locally so you know he's keeping it out there he's keeping it as part of the discussion for everybody from recruits to media to you know everyone remember JMU is not FCS anymore and this is what we're trying to do yeah let's uh transition now um I think you know we've touched on a good good amount of football here uh, you know the basketball teams are both in action right now, and um, it's been a been a long couple of weeks uh, with some time away from the court due to COVID issues in both programs. Um, also, some COVID issues at other programs around the CAA in general. It's been um, the schedule's been almost entirely postponed completely with with almost every program dealing with it at some point. So um, let's start with the men. Um, most recently on Tuesday night, uh, a big win against Northeastern. Um, he's been struggling a little bit, but that comes after a, a loss on uh, Sunday, I believe, to Hallstra. Uh, so, uh, you know, I know they had a lengthy time away, but, you know, what did you see out of the Dukes in the past two games of Open CAA play, and what are you kind of expecting moving forward, Shane? You know, really, on Tuesday night, I think the thing that stuck out to me was that they took a team that they were better than and they put them away, which is something they hadn't done all the time this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they're <clears throat> better than Radford. They're better than a few teams they played this year, and they, you know, let those games stick, stay close. But they're 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 gelling a little bit, and they also just have been shooting the ball incredibly well here the last two games. I don't know if that's maybe a case of, you know, th- the one benefit of the COVID pauses is that you know maybe the one thing you can do when you're not doing anything else is get the team to shoot. <laughs> like they they shot lights out uh, two games in a row. Their, their best shooting performances of the year, and you know put up a lot of points even in a loss and. You know, it seems like they're continuing to make some progress, even though they've had to deal with some pauses and you know almost an entire month between games. And and, and that that was what I was going to talk about was just the COVID issues in general. I mean, um, you know, it, it's wreaked havoc on you know the entire college landscape and, and college basketball in general. But uh, for JMU, I mean, the, both the men and the women um, have dealt with it. Um, and coincidentally, it seems like the women came out of it and they, they're playing almost better than they were before before their their pause and before their break. And then the men, um, I know they, that you know Mark Byington said that in the loss to Hofstra, he thought that um, it kind of impacted them and their fatigue and things like that. I mean, uh, you were there. How much did you, did you see? Um, you know that that big long pause kind of have an impact on them and, and the loss and. Um, you know, is it going to take, kind of maybe even take a couple more games to kind of get their footing again? I think to some degree, especially since they played um, basically only eight guys here um, in the most recent game, they've had uh, Alonzo Sule. Now he's out with uh, COVID protocols, and Tyree Nacho is just kind of recovering from some sort of injury. I'm not exactly sure if it's an ankle, foot, or whatever, but um, he, he's just working his way back. So 
yeah, they've been shorthanded. They pressed a lot the other night, even with you know not having as many guys, because they basically played with seven for a good chunk of the game after uh, after Justin Amati got in foul trouble, and they were still pressing a lot. So we'll we'll see what the recovery is like, but they've got some time before they play again on Saturday. Um, you know, as far as just you know recovering from all of that, I think you know they're they're in pretty good shape because I think they're going to have guys back for the majority of the season now. It seems like it's kind of run through the team. They should have their full group ready to go pretty soon, and they're playing pretty well for the most part. The, the, the fatigue came in and was a factor in the second half against Hofstra. And I think I, I've pointed it out a few times, but they had to the point where they were trailing by three with less than two minutes to go, which is all season kind of been like, okay, we got you where we want you in that situation. <laughs> we're going to win this game. And they get two steals in a row, and they don't get any buckets in transition. They miss a layup. They throw a bad pass on the fast break. And it just – that was – dramatically different than how they played down the stretch in a lot of games. You know, we're talking about George Mason or UVA or ODU. They didn't make those plays, and I think that was where you kind of saw the fatigue kind of hit them. Yeah, they were obviously the defending champ in the CAA, and and we talked earler, you know, before we started recording about you know, William and Mary has been um, the the surpri- the surprise here early on in in league play. Obviously, they open up uh, with a win over Hofstra, and then, and then now they sit at two and zero in, in the CAA. Um, b- before league play, as you mentioned to me off off um, off the mic, uh, was that their only win was over Mary Baldwin, a Division three team. So um, that's a bit of a bit of a surprise. But uh, is there anything else that's kind of stood out to you about the CAA men's race right now? Um, you know, obviously I, everybody kind of expects the Dukes to be competing for that league title, um, whether they are allowed to earn that or not. Uh, but, you know, is there anybody else that kind of stands out? And, and just in general, when you look at that whole the whole league as a, as a whole, you know, what, what, you know, stands out so far? Um, Towson's had some injuries um, they've dealt with, but when they've got their full group, I think they might be one of the toughest teams in CAA to beat. Um, and, you know, they're up there. They're up there now. They took a loss uh, on the road at Drexel earlier, but I think, I think they're going to be really tough to beat, you know, in the CAA race. But it's pretty balanced, especially at the top. I mean, right now at the top uh, is William & Mary, like you mentioned, which <laughs> I still think is probably, you know, probably the worst team in the conference as things go on. I, I'll be surprised if they stay up there. Maybe, maybe they'll shock me, but, um, you know, you look at um, a JMU, a Hofstra, a Towson, a Delaware, and then maybe, like, just one step below that, I'd put a Drexel. That's like five teams that are, you know, really talented, really good, um, and I think there's not a lot of difference between all of those. I, you can see any one of those guys finish at the top of this conference, and that that should make it for a pretty interesting race. Um, looking at JMU, uh, even taking a loss to Hofstra, I feel like they've shown here the last couple of games they have, they have the kind of talent it takes to win this league. It's just um, you know a matter of crazy things can happen as we've seen we didn't think we were going to be dealing with the COVID pauses again this season here we are and that if they continue to happen things could uh, really go crazy yeah on, on the flip side of that like I mentioned the, the women um they were a team that kind of struggled early in the year um in non-conference play obviously they had some some difficult opponents and, and a challenging schedule but um they've come out and they've won you know back-to-back CAA games uh you know what do you what do you see out of the past two games that's been a difference from that that first stretch and and 
are they a legitimate contender in, in that conference? I mean, obviously we know uh, after the non-conference stretch, I think a lot of us kind of you know thought maybe, okay, this might be a down year for them. But um, after back-to-back wins, you know, how, how do you see them kind of shaping up this year? I think they're going to be in the mix. Uh, again, on the women's side, Towson's also had a really good uh, preseason non-conference season and you know good start to conference play. They're going to be really tough to beat. Um, Delaware, I think, was a team that after what they did last year and who they brought back, you kind of had to uh, make them the favorite going into the season, uh, and they're still going to be up there. But you know, Towson's with them. Drexel's got some good players, and JMU's up there too with the same kind of talent level. They just really haven't kind of had everybody together yet. It's still kind of up in the air whether Peyton McDaniel will even play this season, and you know, she's she's one of the more talented players in the conference. So that would make a huge difference for JMU if she ever gets back to 100%. But the bottom line kind of is, you know, Jamie's won three games in a row. They've played teams that they are more than capable of beating. And they've lost some games that they shouldn't have in non-conference play, but they played a super tough non-conference schedule. And right now they're just playing teams that aren't as good as, you know, Maryland, North Carolina, West Virginia, Villanova. And, and even towards the end of non-conference, they were much, much more competitive with the Villanova or West Virginia. They're pretty good teams. So they were they were coming along. They they took their lumps, and they expected to have more players for non-conference games for that kind of a challenging non-conference schedule that they ended up not having. And now they're playing CAA teams, which just frankly aren't. It's not as good, especially in the bottom half of the league. Elon's a pretty good team. That was a pretty good win for them, but they they handled William and Mary pretty easily, which is what they should do. Even taking the uh, bad non-conference record into account. Yeah, that seems to be something that Sean O'Regan likes to do pretty regularly is, is kind of load up that non-conference schedule um, and, and see it pay off once they get to CAA play. Um, you know, before we get off here, we'll, we'll touch on one last thing. And, and you know, we're, we're still a month out or so from practice starting, but uh, Chase Lauder, um, Jamie Baseball, has already um, received a lot of recognition, um, a lot of historic type of recognition probably for a Jamie Baseball player. Um, you know, was recently named an All-American uh, preseason All-American first team by Perfect Game in Rawlings. Uh, that was announced last week. Um, he's the first JMU player to earn first team preseason honors since 2014 uh, when Connor Brown and Chad Carroll um, were each picked as All-Americans by a couple of different publications. Um, you know, he, he's he's been all over the place. I mean, he, two years ago he, he played in the, the Rockingham County Baseball League due to the pandemic going on, and he, he broke a lot of records and just opened a lot of eyes. And I think that was the first – um, time really a lot of folks really got to kind of see how good he was um, and then last year obviously he went up and played um, in the Cape Cod I believe and um, you know he's been ranked as the number one prospect nationally by some publications he's been ranked pretty much top 10 by most um, last year had a 386 batting average 21 RBIs 26 runs scored 12 doubles six homers two triples um, and also pitched for the Dukes so uh, he's the real deal I've, I've seen him several times play and, and he's He's a special talent, but, um, man, I mean, how, how many new faces in the crowd and how many eyes is he going to bring uh, to the baseball team this, this spring? Yeah, I think when you uh, consider the number of scouts that will be around Veterans Memorial Park, um, there being, like, a little more optimism, I think, you know, maybe a lot of it's because Chase is providing so much uh, publicity. I think maybe there's a little more optimism that the baseball team's going to kind of turn it around. You throw in a softball team coming off of 
uh, College World Series, the the spring at Veterans Memorial Park is probably going to be uh, a lot a lot more traffic around that area than you know maybe we've seen in recent years because people are going to want to come out and watch both those teams play. Yeah, I think Chase DeLauder opened a lot of eyes this year nationally at the Cape Cod League. I mean, he led the Cape Cod League in home runs, actually tied with uh, VCU's Tyler Locklear, and he was a guy who's probably projected to be a top round, top three round pick as well. But I mean, being this highly rated coming out of JMU is something that really tells you that you don't have to go somewhere that's a big baseball powerhouse to get noticed. I mean, he's a guy that's probably going to be gone before the top 10 is over in the MLB draft um, coming up this summer. And, I mean, if he just plays like he left off last year, this year coming into the schedule. And, I mean, they're starting off at Florida State, which is definitely a place where there's going to be a ton of MLB scouts in the crowd for both Chase Lauder, but also probably a lot of guys at Florida State. So, It'll be kind of interesting to see how he handles it because last year I don't think he really played with as much pressure. Now coming in with draft stock on the line, being a guy who's been rated um, in the top ten most places, that you know now you know that you're being watched, and let's see if he can can handle it and then see where it takes him this summer. Yeah, I mean he certainly has seemed like a guy that's capable of handling it um, the past couple of years, and I, I, I would imagine that will continue. Uh, Big year for Jamie Baseball under uh, Marlon Eikenberry and, and that, that crew. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that as it gets closer um, to getting started. We'll, we'll dive deeper into the baseball team and the softball team. Um, but I think that just about does it for uh, the first episode of the Purple and Bold podcast. Uh, you know, we hope to do this weekly um, here as, uh, as Noah gets going as our football guy, Shane gets going as our basketball guy. But um, I think it's more of, we're, we're going kind of more of a team effort here recently with with two guys uh, handling the Jamie beat. And, um, I mean, the Dukes deserve it right now with with so much going on. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at a team moving into the FBS level into, you know, arguably the top or one of the top two or three group of five conferences, it'll it'll affect the way we cover Jamie football going forward. You know, we kind of covered an FCS program like they were FBS for several years with Greg, you know, all over the place on that beat. Now I think it'll be a little bit of a joint effort and you're trying to, uh, you know, really cover JMU, like a big time football program that they've made the investment to be. Yeah, no, it's an exciting time for JMU football. I mean, making this transition this year will definitely be an interesting year and seeing just how they perform at that level, but also kind of everything that else follows. So it'll be a great time. And Shane and I are ready to, you know, tackle, tackle everything that has to come. Well, I am uh, sports editor Cody Elliott uh, here at the DNR. Um, obviously, for for Shane Metlin, our uh, our basketball writer, but turning into everything writer, and Noah Fleischman, who will be doing much of the same. Um, that's all, and we'll be back next week for the second episode of the Purple and Bold podcast. Thanks.